Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, moderator of these forums and minister here with my colleagues to and with this congregation. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. That is the overarching rubric that has informed all 72 of these forums over the past 10 years, but never more so than today. The issue today is the homeless and their children right here in our own land. And the voice of conscience is that of Jonathan Kozel. I can think of no better way to describe our guest than to say that his actions have the power of words and his words have the power of action. In the autumn of 1964, fresh from a privileged upbringing in Newton, Massachusetts, from Harvard College, from a term as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and from three years living on the fringes of literary life on the left bank of Paris, he moved from seeing an ad in Harvard Yard looking for teachers to becoming a fourth grade teacher in the Boston school system. He rented an apartment in the neighborhood and lived there or nearby for some 18 years. What he did there spoke volumes about his love of teaching, his love of children, and his chagrin over children being robbed of their childhood, given their lives of poverty and their medieval schooling. And then in 1967, he published what he experienced there in a book called Death at an Early Age. It was a book that made you angry, a book that made you weep. It was jam-packed with words having the quality of action. His Illiterate America, published in 1985, dealing with the tragedy that one out of three Americans cannot read, grew out of the same dynamic, immersion in the price people pay for ignorance, and then words that drive the issue home. As one reviewer put it at the time, he writes like a wrathful angel set loose upon the world with words. While there have been other books, his most recent work, Rachel and Her Children, Homeless Families in America, is a sadly eloquent sharing of the night-long conversations he had with mothers and children who befriended him during 1986 and 87 in the Martinique Hotel in Manhattan, welfare home to 400 families and 1,400 children. The Los Angeles Times called it an extended tour of hell. And the New York Times recognized it as a searing indictment of our society. Mr. Kozel, tell us what you need to say and what we need to hear about the homeless and their children living at the mercy of America. Welcome, sir.
thanks very much. I'm glad to be with you today in Minneapolis and glad especially to see so many students here this afternoon. I want to share with you today a long and difficult journey that I've taken in the past few years, a journey that took me far from the familiar world of friends and comforts and relaxed ideas into a haunting world of agonies and tears, the world of hom homeless children and their mothers and their fathers in New York. It began a couple of days before Christmas, 1985. I read a story in the New York Times about a little boy who died while he was homeless in New York. He'd been born after his mother had spent her entire pregnancy in a homeless shelter, building known as the Martinique Hotel, one of 60 shelters for the homeless in New York at that time. The woman had been malnourished, had no prenatal care. It's very hard to get those services when you're homeless. As a result, the little boy was born premature, weighed only four pounds at birth, a couple days after birth was found to be deaf, blind, and brain damaged. He lived only eight months. I tried to get this child from my mind. It was Christmas time and I wanted to enjoy a normal Christmas at home in Massachusetts where I live. But I couldn't sleep, so after a difficult night, I got in my car, drove to the airport, flew to New York City, found the mother of that little boy, and in time, I found my way into the Martinique Hotel. An extraordinary experience. Huge building, 16 stories tall, right there in the middle of Manhattan, in the center of the richest section of the richest city in the world. Huge building, once elegant, now squalid. 2,000 people living in one building. Two-thirds of them children. Average child, six years old. I spent Christmas there, then New Year's, then much of the winter, spring, and summer into the fall, I went there for Thanksgiving that year. By the time Thanksgiving came, I'd been away from my own friends and family so long I felt homeless myself. Uh, when Thanksgiving came, nobody who was close to me wanted me as a guest because uh, I was so somber. The last thing you want for Thanksgiving is somebody who's uh, spent the year in a homeless shelter. So one of the families in the Martinique asked me to join them for Thanksgiving. They had no kitchen, of course. Cooking was forbidden. 
families cooked illegally on hot plates on the floor. There were no chairs or tables, so we had Thanksgiving dinner on the floor. It was a very poor family, like all the families in that, in that awful place. Even the previous spring, food had been scarce, but at least in the spring, they'd been getting about $150 in food stamps each month. By the fall, the White House, for some reason, had cut their uh, food stamps down to $33 a month. So it was a sparse Thanksgiving, but it tasted very good to me because of the way in which it was offered. And then I was there again another Christmas and another New Year's and another winter, spring and summer and another Thanksgiving. And in a sense, I've never found my way back to my home. There are half a million children homeless in America in the course of any year. Six times the figure of 10 years ago. Six-fold increase. If all these kids were gathered together in, in one place, they'd represent a population larger than Atlanta, Denver, or St. Louis. Because they're scattered in a thousand different cities, they're easily unseen. And because so many of these children die in infancy or lose the strength to struggle and fight back in early years, many of them will never live to tell their stories. None of these children have committed any crime. They have done nothing wrong. Their only crime is to be born poor in a rich society. In New York City right now, the waiting list for public housing homeless family wants to put their name on the list. Waiting list is 18 years. In Boston, it's 12 years. In Miami, it's 20 years. The White House has stopped building public housing. Housing funds were cut by 80%, $25 billion during the Reagan years. President Bush refuses to restore this money. What kind of childhood can these kids expect? For some of them, the answer can be stated briefly because their lives are brief. The infant death rate for children in the homeless shelters in New York is four times the rate for middle class uh, children in New York's affluent east side. Those who survive the first year of life are surrounded by infectious illnesses that you don't see anywhere else now in the developed world. Whooping cough has come back. Tuberculosis is familiar in the shelters. Many of these homeless kids in New York City haven't been inoculated. Of course, if they're not inoculated, they can't go to public school. Half the homeless children in America do not go to public school at all, or if so, only sporadically. Those who do typically are two years behind grade level. Many get to class so tired and hungry they can't concentrate, they fall asleep at their desks. A lot of these kids are 
slotted into special classes, and most of them once slotted will remain there their entire school career. A lot of homeless children that I know are, are ashamed to go to school, afraid to go, because their classmates make fun of them. They call them the hotel children or the motel children and don't want to sit near them. Even their teachers, even good teachers, keep their distance from these kids. These homeless children look diseased and dirty. Many times they are both dirty and diseased. And they bring the smell of destitution with them into school, and there really is a smell of destitution. It's the smell of sweat and filth and unwashed clothes and urine, and nobody wants to get near them. I know that feeling of uh, withdrawal very well myself. Can picture a late night in the Martinique Hotel, winter night, on the 12th floor, talking to a woman I called Rachel. Rachel is a biblical, apocalyptic figure, chanting the 23rd Psalm there in this filthy, tiny room, lost in this uh, cavernous building late at night. Talking to her late at night, I often would find the best conversations were after midnight. Little girl, Rachel's youngest child, sitting in my lap, six years old, while I'm interviewing her mother. Little baby falls asleep. Little girl's name was Raisin. Raisin falls asleep against me, rests her head against my chest, and puts her arms around my, around my uh, shirt, holds on to my shirt with her fingers. As she gets sleepier, she takes one hand and puts it in her mouth, her fingers, puts all her fingers in her mouth. I can feel her cheek against my chest very warm and her hand all damp and wet. Every so often, she wakes up, looks up at me, kind of squints at me, wondering who I am or what I'm doing there at 2 a.m. Takes her fingers out of her mouth and shoves them in my mouth to get me to stop talking. And then she takes the microphone from the tape recorder and babbles into it something that I can't understand, maybe not meant to be understood, kind of sings to herself. And she falls asleep again and drops the microphone and puts her finger back in her own mouth. And when it's time to leave, I literally have to unpeel her fingers from my shirt. She holds on so tight. It's almost as if these kids feel so grateful that somebody lets them get near that they don't want to let you go. So I have to unpeel her fingers and set her down on the floor, kiss her goodbye, kiss Rachel goodbye, go to the door. At the door, Raisin's older brother 
and sister do the same thing. They try to hold me there. They're a little older than she is, so they, they put their arms around my knees like little football players to immobilize me. And I have to do the same thing, force their fingers open and take their arms away and kiss them goodbye so I can leave. And then I go out into the corridor, and now it's getting close to 2.30 in the morning. And it's an extraordinary sight. As far as the eye can see, in both directions, this long, circuitous corridor, there are children everywhere. 2.30 in the morning. Kids, some of them racing back and forth, shouting, causing a bit of uh, havoc. Most of them sitting still and quiet, almost motionless. Many of them tiny kids in diapers sitting on the floor in bare feet. Some without even diapers, just a t-shirt, nothing else. I told this story some time ago in Texas, and uh, a very wealthy woman heard it. And instead of feeling sad, she got angry at the mothers, at the homeless mothers in the Martinique. And she said to me, what's the matter with those mothers? Uh, what are they doing letting their children play in the corridor at 2.30 in the morning? I said to her, listen, lady, if you're on the 12th floor of the Martinique Hotel, it doesn't matter what time it is. It makes no difference if it's 2 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon. The sun never shines. It's always night. But there you are at this hour, now 2.30 in the morning, and you see these kids everywhere. And as I say, most of them motionless almost uh, comatose, and over their heads, peeling paint, paint there was lead infested, plaster crumbling from the ceiling, there was asbestos in the, in the building, a fire exit which has been welded shut so there'd be no way to, to get out, a, a uh, smoke alarm with the wires extending out into the midair, exposed electric wires everywhere. And you, you have to go past all this to get to the elevator. And in order to get to the elevator, you literally have to wade through these children. It's like walking through a field of dying flowers, a field of dry plants, dry weeds. You get to the elevator, and there's trash and garbage everywhere. A couple of barrels spilling over with, with trash, raw sewage too. Children out there also sitting, playing in, the, playing in the garbage. Playing in it, touching it in time, becoming one with it themselves. And you press the button for the elevator and you wait and wait and wait. It never comes. Many mothers there had described that to me. They said, wouldn't you think, with all its ingenuity, New York City could contrive a couple of elevators that would, that would work, that would bring people to their rooms and in a building this big? 
And I was always skeptical. I would distrust them. Rachel told me of going grocery shopping. And of course, there are no supermarkets in Midtown Manhattan. So they'd have to go a long, long way. She might go 14, 16 blocks, 20 blocks away to find a place she could afford. And since there was no daycare, she'd have to bring, bring her baby with her. Sometimes pregnant women had to do this too. Get their groceries far away walk back perhaps 16 blocks because they couldn't waste a couple of precious dollars for a taxi, get back to the hotel, press the elevator button, and wait and wait and wait would never come. Many of the uh, women I met there had asthma. Asthma seemed to be the most common ailment in that, in that building, probably from the tension, but possibly also from the dust and, and filth and crowding. People would go to, the, go to the hospital to Bellevue with an asthma attack and then come back to the hotel and have to walk up 14 flights and, and be sick again by the time they got back to their room. But I was always dubious about these stories. I thought, well, maybe poor people exaggerate. And uh, there it is, 2.30 in the morning. How busy could an elevator be at that hour? I wait 20. 25, 30 minutes, it never comes. And all the while, I'm looking at these children playing in the trash and wondering, what is wrong with the United States? What is wrong with our society that we would do this, that we would do this to absolutely innocent people who have done nothing wrong? And finally, I give up and decide to walk down 12 flights to the, to the ground. It's a long spiral staircase, marble. It was elegant once. But now there's wire over the staircase so children won't fall to their death through the, through the stairwell. On every flight, I see the same thing for 12 flights all the way down. Children sitting in garbage and trash, playing in the garbage. Some of them spilling into the stairs like garbage themselves. It's awful to see that. And finally, you get to the lobby, and there you face these guards and these big shelters in New York and other cities. They, they hire guards. The purpose, allegedly, is to keep out drugs. But in this case, the guards were the drug dealers. The real function was to keep out journalists. So what you do is look carefully to make sure that your tape recorder is hidden and you walk past them fast and hope you can make it to the door. I get outside. It's now close to 3 AM, freezing cold, midwinter in Manhattan. Look both ways, no bus, no taxi. So I turn left, and I head for Fifth Avenue, and then turn left again and start walking uptown towards the hotel where I'm staying for the night. It's 20 blocks. In the middle of the night, naturally, I don't remember to bring a coat with me, so I turn up my jacket collar against the wind and start walking. And in those 20 blocks, I pass all of the most elegant stores in New York City. There they are. You know, there's the splendor of our consumer society. There it is, Saks Fifth Avenue, Harry Winston Jewels. 
Tiffany's, all these beautiful stores, block away, Bloomingdale's. And as I come up to uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, I think of the children in the Martinique who tell me that they love to stand in front and look in the windows because Saks Fifth Avenue is a beautiful store. And the young teenagers from the Martinique and some of the little girls, eight, nine-year-olds, like to go there, and especially at Christmas time. It's beautiful. There's a wonderful display in the windows. I'm standing there looking in, and it's, they've got a whole miniature little house in the windows, and it moves and works, and they have little figures moving in and out of different rooms, going from the kitchen to the living room, and then upstairs into the bedroom. And I think of these homeless kids looking at this on Christmas Eve in New York City. Some of the little girls in the Martinique told me they loved to stand outside the front door of that store. I said, why? And they said, because the ladies who come out smell so nice. And I know what they meant. They meant that wonderful smell of wealth, the smell of perfume, expensive leather handbags, nice tweed clothing. Of course, the store owners didn't like the homeless children there. They herded them away, ruined business. And so you pass all that in the middle of the night, finally get up to the hotel where I'm staying for the night. And it's a very pretty hotel, and it's clean. And when I come to the door, there are no hostile guards. There's a doorman, and he's very friendly and polite. He says, good evening, sir. And I think to myself, boy, what would it mean, the homeless, if, if somebody was standing at the door of the shelter and talked to them that way and said, good evening, sir. And I go in, and the lobby is beautiful. And I go to the elevator, and there are 12 elevators, and they all work. I try several of them. They all work. And I get in the elevator, the one I select, my elevator. And I go up to my floor, and the elevator is cheerful, and there's a lighted bulb inside. And you get to the floor you're going to, and you step out, and it smells wonderful and everything's clean, and next to the elevator door, there's a little thing which is full of sand. I guess it's some kind of ashtray. They always have them next to elevators in these hotels. And on the top of the sand, there's a beautiful design. I don't know how they make those designs. I'm sure you've seen them. It looks like it's the seal of the hotel. Yes, they make it with a cookie cutter or something, and you look at it, and it's perfect. Nobody ever uses those things because they're so beautiful. People are afraid, afraid to put anything in it. And you walk down the corridor to your room and you open the door of your room and, and, it's, and it's perfect. And while I was away that day at the homeless shelter, somebody came in and they even folded the linen down. And there's two little mints on the pillow. And the room in which I'm staying that night is twice the size of the room in which Rachel and her children have been living for four years. And I stand there in the middle of that room and I'm thinking of Raisin sitting on my lap of her fingers clinging to my shirt. And I'm thinking of her sweetness, but I'm also remembering the way she smelled. 
And that smell somehow is still on my shirt. It's that smell of destitution. So in a strange moment, what I do before I go to bed is this. I step into the bathroom and I tear off all my clothes and I get in the shower and I turn it up as hot as I can until it's steaming hot and then I get in the shower and I stay there 20 minutes until I scald away that child's smell before I go to sleep. So, in a terrible, terrible sense, even these children have become untouchables. Kids like these are almost inevitably drawn to violence and crime. Why not? What have they to be grateful for in this society? What are all our fabled civil liberties to them? What is the right of a free press, of the right to read whatever they like when they're adults? What is that to them if they won't even survive five years of life? Or if they do survive it mangled and distorted and illiterate and ill? So they go out and commit crimes. And when they're little, they're little crimes. They panhandle. That's illegal now in New York City. Never thought I'd live to see that. Former Mayor Ed Koch lectured wealthy people not to give money to the homeless. It'll just encourage them. Encourage them to do what? To live? To eat? People spoke of putting signs up in the park. You know, please don't feed the people or the pigeons. So when they're little, they panhandle. You see them out there at 2 AM panhandling for quarters. When they're a little bigger, especially if they're girls, get to be 12, 14 years old, they don't need to beg any longer, because now they discover they have something they can sell. And so they drift into casual prostitution. Many do. And sometimes later into not so casual prostitution. Some of the little boys do that also. And then when they're older, they drift into drugs and many into crime, real crime. When they're old enough to commit a violent crime, a serious crime, what will we do? Will we remember what we did to them as children? Will we condemn the mayor of New York or the president or the Congress of the United States for ripping the heart and soul out of these children at an early age? Probably not. More likely, we'll condemn the children. We'll call for more police and bigger prisons. Already, in the past decade, we've tripled prison space in the United States. We're about to double it again. We now have the largest prison population any nation in the world, with the exception of South Africa. But all the prisons we may build will not be large enough to hold the hatred and the anger that we're now creating in the very, very poor. Martinique is closed now. Mayor Koch announced its closing by coincidence a few months after my book was published. 
But the conditions I describe there can be found today all over the United States. Most disturbing, the same phenomenon is found in places once regarded as suburban enclaves of the middle class. Westchester County, affluent Westchester around New York City, for example. Several thousand children and their parents live there now in cheap rundown motels. Some of the kids in these rundown motels ride 60 miles twice a day to get to public school because they won't have them in the districts in which they're in which they're sheltered. They have to go back to the place they came from. And there are homeless children now in every corner of America, in northern Maine, in northern Michigan, in Illinois, in Indiana, Pennsylvania, in Ohio, Oregon, California, right here in Minnesota, right in this city. Met some homeless kids last night. All over this nation. In the long run, what we're seeing here this awful sight of homeless children in our streets is not a disaster unique unto itself. It is part of a consistent pattern by which those who are most vulnerable in our society, particularly the very young and very poor, have been compelled to pay the price for the excessive greed and affluence of others. The gulf between the richest and poorest people in this country is the widest it has been since figures were initially recorded back in 1947, the wealthiest 20% of Americans now have 46% of the wealth. Poorest 20% have 4% of the wealth. That's according to the New York Times, so it must be true. Would they lie? Certainly not, except in book reviews. When exaggerated opportunity is offered to a few, others are obliged to pay the price. In a competitive society with limited resources, everyone succeeds at the expense of someone else. A civilized and ethical society is one in which the rules that govern competition are at least as fair as possible. The rules have never been fair in the United States. What saddens me is that they are less fair now than they have been at any time in my adult life. It's often been observed that a society is known and should be judged by the provision that it makes for its most vulnerable people. The way a social order treats its elderly can tell us much about its reverence or contempt for history. The way we treat our children tells us something of our moral disposition, too. It speaks of our respect or our despisal for the future. I've been at this now, working with children of poor people for a quarter of a century. I've seen so many tears. The children I first met and saw destroyed within the segregated schools of Boston, my hometown, way back in 1965. They're adults now, many in prison, others unemployed, and many homeless. And their lives are decimated and cannot be granted to them to attempt a second time. You do not get a second run through on the hour of your imperfect childhood. Even in America, 
You do not get to be a child twice. Today in the streets and slums and shelters of this nation, another generation of small children looks to us and asks us to be gentle with their destinies. Their hands are small, their voices soft, their spirits frail. Their hearts are often as hungry as their stomachs. And their eyes ask questions that have not been answered. Thank you very much. If I may quote Rachel in your book, she said, Ain't we the world? Ain't we a piece of it? We are so close they be afraid to see. Give us a shot at something. We are something. Ain't we something? I'm depressed, but we are something. People in America don't want to see. Well, you have helped us see, and we thank you. To the radio audience, uh, let me indicate to you that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Our speaker today, Jonathan Kozel, author, advocate for the poor, the homeless. His topic, at the mercy of America, the homeless and their children. Our co-sponsors today, the McKnight Foundation, and we thank them. Uh, the radio audience is reminded that you too may have a chance to ask questions. And by the way, you sitting here are encouraged at this time to pass your question to the aisles, and they'll be picked up by the ushers and brought forward. Uh, the radio audience also has this opportunity to pose questions to our speaker. And the phone here at Westminster is 332-3421. 332-3421. Questions to the aisles and forward, and you, sir, please return to the podium. Uh, we, while other questions are coming forward, perhaps I could uh, uh, pose one or two to you. You said at one point, the lives of these children and their mothers are not cheerful, but the courage they display is a remarkable affirmation of the power of sh sheer human nerve to overcome even the most sustained assault. Would you talk about some of the courage that, that you witness uh, in sure. this situation? Sure. I, I think that's particularly important because there's been a tendency in recent years, in the past 10 years, to, to, um, to look at very poor people, especially poor women, especially homeless women, mothers of these kids, and instead of asking what is wrong with America to make them homeless, we ask, what's the matter with these women? What, what's their inner failing? Uh, it's, it's axiomatic in a, in a period of right-wing reaction that a society would steer away from social and economic explanations of poverty and would search instead for clinical reasons. 
Uh, you can see the absurdity of this, of course, if you look at a foreign nation, if some expert went off to, uh, went off to uh, the starving nation of Biafra and came back and told us the reason all these people are hungry is because they have uh, <coughs> profound value problems. It's because of the breakdown of the family structure, let's say, in Biafra. Uh, we, we, would, we would react with proper indignation. But that's very much what's happening here in the United States. So to me, it's very important to show the strength and courage of these people under fire. For example, the woman I called Kim, whose real name I can now tell you is Pat Stanley. Uh, we become good friends. Pat never lost her, her confidence while she, was, while she was living in the Martinique. And she was there for many, many years. And she had a large family because it was herself her children and some of their children, it was three generations, packed into two rooms. Uh, I often wonder where her strength came from. Part of it was political. She refused to condemn herself. She was a nurse. She had worked hard all her life. The only reason she was homeless was because the burner, the, the oil burner in her house, uh, stopped working in the middle of the winter in the city. Rather than provide her with, with a lump sum grant of a couple thousand dollars to, to, to fix the burner, preferred to support her in homeless shelters for four years at a cost of $4,000 monthly. She had a proper sense of the insanity of the society and did not believe that she herself was insane. I think a lot of her strength also came from religion. She prayed constantly, and that was common in the Martinique. I, I sometimes wondered if homeless people were, were predisposed to, to uh, be religious. And uh, you know, I asked one woman that. I said, were all these people religious before? She said, no, most of them weren't. She said, you become religious here after a while, because every day that you survive seems like a miracle. Mm. Mm. Thank you. <clears throat> From the audience, thank you very much for your moving address. Please don't leave us with no hope. What can the people in this audience do? Please be specific. Thank you. I'll be very specific. The, a general response would be, you know, get out and help every group that's working for the homeless, including the homeless shelters. There happen to be some superb homeless shelters in the Minneapolis area. I've visited several of them because I've been here many times. Uh, the 410 shelter, for example, uh, close to the church in which we're, we're meeting right now is, is superb with a wonderful daycare program and education program for children. In a way, what's happening in Minneapolis could be a kind of model for the rest of the country. But I'm not going to flatter you too much. The ultimate problem here, as everywhere in the country, is that rents are too high and poor people don't have enough money. It is ultimately an economic issue. We've just come out of a decade in which rents skyrocketed in every major city. Low-income buildings were smashed to the ground in order that people like Donald Trump could, uh, put, up, could put up luxury apartment buildings and offices. Uh, Minimum wage, meanwhile, was frozen for a decade. Industrial jobs disappeared. Uh, and Ronald Reagan, followed by George Bush, uh, cut the funding which previously subsidized housing. Uh, what, one specific thing you could do right now in this, in this part of uh, 
the country would be to support those people who are asking why the federal government itself, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, Jack Kemp's organization, why that division of our government is warehousing thousands and thousands and thousands of government-owned buildings all over this nation, boarded buildings, houses, habitable houses in every major city. There are hundreds of them in every city. In some city, there are thousands of these buildings, two-family, three-family, four-family houses, which for a tiny amount of money could be renovated and occupied by homeless families. Uh, instead of doing that, HUD is warehousing these buildings. Warehousing means keeping them unoccupied, boarded up. Why? Because someday wealthy developers who contribute heavily to the Republican Party are going to come along and they're going to ask to purchase those buildings. And of course, we all pay for it with a sense of shame. And I applaud those uh, disreputable mavericks right here in Minneapolis who recently went and occupied a couple of buildings, HUD-owned buildings, to prove the point. It doesn't say anything about Minneapolis. It says something to us about the madness of our national priorities. And I certainly hope the police in this city will have the sensitivity and sanity not to arrest those people. But uh, police ought to take time off from work and go and help them paint up those buildings, make them nice places to live, help them hook up electricity. Mm -hmm. From the audience, uh, I listen in pain, tears, asking what I can do over and over again. What can I do? As a single parent, I too became frightened and angry, and it causes me such pain. What I can do is offer a challenge to our nation's major corporations to make a commitment to the eradication of this cancer in our society. And my question, what can I do? And then a related question, what role can the business community play in addressing the problems of homelessness? Well, business, business people particularly can do a lot, and, um, and some do. I mean, there are, some, there are some corporate groups around the country that have been pretty good on this issue, particularly the publishing industry, which, which is important in New York City, naturally. Uh, in part because the editors and owners of the publishing companies can't get to their jobs without passing homeless people in the streets. And it stirred and moved a lot of these folks. And, uh, and some of them have taken good, good specific positions. Unfortunately, and this is the main point I would like to leave with you, corporate initiatives, whether it's for the homeless or for the hungry, or for our public schools, tend to be relegated to charity, not justice. And let me explain what I mean by that. The same bankers who have redlined every major city in America, take Chicago, for example, the same large banks which have redlined the city so poor people and black people know they have to stay where they belong and can't rent in a decent neighborhood, the same, that those same bankers have now formed business partnerships to offer 
uh, a couple hundred dollars in charitable gifts to segregated schools in Chicago. That to me is, is charity masking, ma masking a, an aversion to justice. Uh, in many cities, in Texas for example, I have met corporate leaders, real estate dealers, real estate developers, who have militantly disbanded low-income property in major cities, Dallas, Houston, across the state. They have, they have personally been responsible, responsible for displacing poor people from their homes, have as a result made billions of dollars in windfall real estate profits by redeveloping for the wealthy. And then what do they do? They hold a luncheon and they invite me to come to Texas and give a sad talk about the homeless. And at the end of the talk, they, they resolve that they will all volunteer once a week and bring, and bring um, cookies to the homeless shelters. And they call themselves the thousand points of light. But the only, but you know, we don't need those kinds of points of light. We need people to turn the generator back on. I mean, that's the real issue. These are people who, you know, through their national priorities, through their unrelenting support for the most extreme right-wing policies of Ronald Reagan and to a lesser degree those of George Bush, have turned off the lights all over America. And then they want to make it up as volunteers. To me, this is the triumph of charity over ethics, the worst kind of charity, not the kind that St. Paul had in mind. Another question from the audience. Has your experience with the homeless in New York City and elsewhere caused you to lose faith with our free enterprise system? Oh, very good question. <laughs> well, as some of you may suspect, I am on the liberal side of the spectrum in this country. <laughs> Indeed, I wish, you know, I wish Democrats would would, would run honestly as liberals. I thought it was shocking in the last political campaign that, that our unhappy governor in Massachusetts, you know, when he, when, when he was accused by the Republicans of being a tax and spend liberal, felt he had to squirm out of that somehow. And I think he should have been honest. He should have said, damn right I'm a tax and spend liberal. I'm going to tax rich Republicans and give it to poor people all over this country, most of them Democrats. I mean, you know, we don't need one political party in America. And if the Democrats are simply going to simulate the Republican Party, what's the point of voting? Uh, I would have rather lose in a real election than lose in a false one, as we did anyway, um, those of us who are Democrats. But on the specific point about the free enterprise system, I hope this won't disappoint some of my old radical pals in, in, uh, in this notoriously subversive part of America, but um, I actually am a pretty patriotic guy. I actually like, I like the American flag, for example. I really do like it. I don't like to see people soil it uh, or rip it up, though I think the worst and the most vicious way of soiling it is by is is when political candidates wrap their selfishness and greed in the flag. Um, I don't I don't know any any 
poor person in America who, even the homeless people in Texas who have been stealing flags in order to sleep, at them, sleep in them during the winter so they won't freeze. Uh, I don't think those people do nearly the damage to the American flag that George Bush did in the last election, but that's a different issue. Um, I, I happen to, I love the flag and I don't like to be, see it soiled by, by the worst, worst kind of greed and selfishness. And I happen to think free enterprise system is remarkably effective for many, many, many needs in our society. Anyone who's gone to a socialist country and had to stand in line in a grocery store and that kind of thing um, comes to appreciate, I'm being realistic with you and not romantic about this, you really come to appreciate some of the glories of this country. I mean, the American supermarket, frankly, is just terrific. It's, it's, it's a real, it's, you know, if I didn't know the rest of what goes on in this country, you know, I might almost become a Republican. I mean, these, some things work well in America, and a lot of it is due to free enterprise, but in basic human services, Health, nutrition, but above all, housing, the free enterprise system does not work for the poorest people in our society. There is no question about it. It does not work, and tinkering with it will not make it work. The only way this problem is going to be resolved is with strong, aggressive, government intervention, government has to, has to stay, say explicitly, yes, this is a competitive society, but when competition means that one man has $50 million and this child doesn't have enough to eat, then we intervene. And then we intervene, and if we need to, we intervene by taking some of that money from the man who has $50 million, by taxing Donald Trump at 50% of his income if that's what it takes to house the homeless he has rendered homeless in New York. And if that sounds like socialism, so be it. I don't think we ought to be afraid of being contaminated by, um, by these, danger, these dangerous alien ideas. Uh, I don't think of it as socialism myself. I think of it as, as, as the absolute mandate of our Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's in that tradition that I'm telling you today, America is betraying all of its most eloquent ideals. Mm. Mm. Two questions, one from the audience, one from the uh, radio audience. Uh, William Bennett, the federal drug czar, recently said he thought that children should be taken from drug areas and drug homes to be placed in foster homes in or, or orphanages. As a coarse city school worker, I see kids whose lives have no chance without intervention of some kind, such as the suggested removal from drug environment. Your thoughts, please. And then from the radio audience, how much bearing does crack cocaine have on the suppression of lower class people? Well, um, first, in regard to the, the uh, quotation from Mr. Bennett, who moved so naturally from, from education to narcotics, um, this is just one more of the despicable things he said in recent years, which has um, made me, you know, wonder um, about about the uh, 
the, the environment in which people would even feel comfortable making a statement like that. Uh, yes, it's true that there is, um, that, that, that there is a plague of, uh, of drug addiction among many of the poorest people in America, especially in the big cities amongst uh, non-white people. It doesn't surprise me. Um, this, this happens in colonial societies all the time. A colonized people, subjugated people, people who see no hope in life, uh, are inevitably drawn to some type of desperate self-ruin. I don't see crack addiction in the big cities as a form of self-indulgence. I see it as a disguised form of suicide. We have a whole generation of people who have lost the will to live because life for them has lost its savor. The worst possible idea is to take these children from their mothers and fathers. First of all, whether, whether it's because the parents have used drugs or whether it's because of any of the other alleged frailties of these parents. The enlightened thing to do in a society which presumes to value the integrity of families is not to take the children from their mothers and where are you going to put them into one of those overcrowded foster homes or orphanages. In New York City there's so little space that, that babies taken away from their mothers, infants taken from their mothers because the mothers are judged inappropriate parents, have been tethered to their beds for a year at a time in hospitals. They, can't, they don't even have a place to put them, to let them leave. They have to tether them to the bed so they won't start to walk. What are we going to do? Don't take the children from their mothers. Give the mothers drug therapy and take the family out of the slum and give that family a rent subsidy, enough to live, let's say, in a nice house next door to William Bennett. I mean, that's what I would do. To come back essentially where you began, a question from the floor, have you kept in touch with Rachel and her children? Rachel, of all the families that I got to know, is the one who's been most elusive. She was spiritually destroyed by her time in the Martinique, and as I said in the book, she did become uh, a drug user while she was there, and she went through, um, she tried, she got her name on a list for therapy, but the wait in New York is something like 10 months. Um, can you imagine anything more insane than that? How hard it is for a person to get the courage to ask for help. You tell them to come back in 10 months or even 10 weeks, you won't ever see them again. And the same with alcohol therapy. So she, she's one of the few whom I have not been able to locate again, though I have tried. And yet, at least there's, you know, a little bit of happiness at, in looking back. Most of the families in the book are now living in real housing, in real apartments. Not much thanks to the city of New York. A lot of it thanks to the reader of my book. Uh, on the back page of the book, I put an address where people who wanted could send nonprofit gifts to a foundation we set up, Fund for the Homeless. And uh, to my amazement, over 10,000 readers of the book did send contributions. And we used that money to relocate. Uh, 
most of the families that I knew in the Martinique and other shelters, and, or at least to help them to relocate. And we're doing that today with other homeless families in other sections of America. And I might say what moved me most about these gifts that people sent to me, readers of my book, was not so much the $2,000 gifts, which occasionally came from wealthy people, though I was very grateful for that. But particularly moving were the $6 and $4 and $2 gifts that came in cash from people who didn't have stationery with their address printed on it, or people who would send it in a little, a little used envelope, poorly addressed, and inside with a scribbled note saying, we are on welfare ourselves, and we don't have much, but we have enough to pay the rent. I hope this will help. And when I get letters like that, money orders for $10 from people who are too poor to have a check account, that gives me a very good feeling about America. And it gives me the feeling that beyond all the institutional cruelties of our society and all the nationally administered injustice, there's an enormous amount of basic decency within our population, rich and poor, black and white, all over the country. There is a basic sense of goodness and kindness. That's what I love about America, and that's what I hope that my writing will further elicit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> You're quoted, sir. <laughs> We're just about there. You're quoted in the uh, Chicago Tribune as saying, there's a lot of kindness in this country, but for some reason we Americans have been anesthetized to our own compassion in the last years. We've built a high wall around ourselves, or otherwise we'd all burst into tears. Well, I think it's fair to say, as per this room today, and, and I dare to hope in this larger radio audience, that the wall, like the Berlin Wall, is, at least has begun to come down, and the anesthesia has begun to wear off. We are in your debt. Thank you. Thank you.